Well, today we're continuing our series, The Grand Invitation, and we're in message five, and today we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter four. And I want to talk about tearing down invisible walls, how Jesus did this when it comes to evangelism. And uh, we're going to be looking at some principles that Jesus used. Uh, And before we uh, read our text, we're going to kind of read it as we go through it. Um, You know, there's another passage of Scripture right here in the the book of John, just on the other page, back to John chapter 3, where Jesus deals with Nicodemus. And uh, just for time's sake, we don't have time to look at that and look at this at the same time. But what we're going to do is I just want to, at the beginning here, I just want to throw out an introductory material to show you the contrast of those two interactions where Jesus actually met individuals and had a conversation with them could not be greater. When you look at Nicodemus, he was a Jew, whereas... The woman here in John 4, she was a Samaritan. And we'll cover what all that is. Uh, He was a man, she was a woman. Obvious difference. He was educated, religious leader, educated. She probably most likely wasn't, just given the culture and the day. Uh, He was a leader among his people. She was probably disrespected by her people. Uh, Nicodemus was morally upright, and he was proud of it. (laughs) Uh, She was probably, well, she was immoral, the story we're going to find out today, and she was probably ashamed of it. Nicodemus recognized Jesus' merits and sought him out. Remember, he came at night, wanted to talk to this man who was teaching these things. Yet this poor woman, at the first, she she had no idea who he was. (laughs) Uh, Jesus sought her. Nicodemus shows that no matter how religious you may be, doesn't matter, you still need to come to Jesus for salvation. I talk to people all the time, and they go, oh, I go to this church. I go, I don't care. I frankly don't care. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter whether you were baptized, confirmed, All those things. It doesn't matter. That's all religiosity. That's all man's attempt to reach out to a holy God to seek his approval. And the Bible says that every time it falls flat. So Nicodemus shows us no matter how religious you may be, you still need to come to Jesus for salvation. Listen to this. The woman at the well shows us that no matter how immoral you may be, the salvation that Jesus offers, offers extends to you. Yes, praise God for that. So you have two strangers here in John chapter 4 who met beside a well on a hot afternoon in Samaria. One was a woman, the other was a man. We don't know the, the woman's name. Her name isn't given to us in the text. The man was Jesus But their conversation changed her life. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go through the Gospels and look at the conversations that Jesus had with different individuals. But what's fascinating is this conversation is by far the longest. It's the longest conversation anyone ever had with Jesus as recorded in Scripture. And here is this woman who is immoral, She doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. She's been shamed in her community. She feels shame within her. And these encounters sometimes when you go through the Gospels and you see how Jesus interacts with different people really reveal to us what Jesus taught about different aspects of life, different common problems that we all share together, even though these happened 2,000 years ago. They're very relevant. A lot of times you hear Christians say, well, you know, um, I, I appreciate this teacher because he makes the Bible relevant. Well, you got a problem right there. If anybody's trying to make the Bible anything other than what it is, you got a problem. Would you agree? We don't have to make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. It's been relevant since its inception. 
Times change, but human hearts, human lives remain the same. We all have the same problem. We all deal with sin. We all have the same hopes. We all have the same fears. We all have the same doubts, the same dreams. We all struggle with a variety of problems, whether it's uncontrolled anger, foolish choices, misplaced priorities, hypocrisy, guilt, indifference, frivolous curiosity, misguided ambition, limited faith, convenient excuses, nagging doubt, compulsive busyness. That's one we relate to here in the Bay Area for sure. Broken dreams or even personal failures. Probably one of those, boy, hit a hot button for you. I know several did for me. So sometimes I hear people say, well, the Bible's irrelevant. No, it's not. All you have to do is make the teachings of the Bible clear to people. And when you make the teachings of the Bible clear to people, it becomes very relevant to their lives. And that's so important. That's why we teach from the Scriptures. That's why we teach through the Scriptures. We desire to tell it like it is so it will remain relevant because anything else is not going to be worth hearing. And so the story of Jesus and the woman, I'm sure you're familiar with this. A lot of us have read through this. You've studied it in Sunday school. You've probably heard many messages on it. But it's so simple, yet it's so profound, this conversation that Jesus has. A man meets a woman, and it seems almost like a chance encounter. And in a few brief moments after their conversation, her life is changed for all eternity. There's a lot of lessons in this. There's a lot of lessons about racial prejudice. There's a lot of lessons about religious hatred, about dealing with moral outcasts. And it also conveys some very valuable lessons on how to do evangelism effectively. Because you can do evangelism, but you can do evangelism very ineffectively. And so as we begin... This is, as I said, the longest conversation anyone ever had with Jesus. So I think it bears some of our attention. He didn't have this long conversation with any of his disciples, as, as recorded throughout Scripture. And so here we are. It's on a hot day. The sun's beating down on his head. There's sweat pouring from their brow as they walk along this dusty road. It was probably mid to late July, a lot of people say. So the temperature may have been well over 100 degrees. And if you've been in that kind of temperature, you know what it's like. Even though it's a dry heat, it causes you to sweat. To make matters worse, Jesus had been traveling with his friends since sunrise. They weren't taking an Uber or taking a bus. They were walking. And so the sun was now directly overhead. They were hurrying to make their way through this part of the, the, the country as quick as possible. And so he came to this well with a large ledge built above the ground. In the typical manner of the Middle East, they'd always built kind of seating around the well so you could sit there and do what you needed to do. And he thought to himself, wow, if I could just get a glass of water, <laughs> if I could just get a scoop of water, that would really be good. But you had to have something to draw from the well. These were deep wells. At the precise moment, guess who wanders along? The woman came along. Now, this wasn't the normal time for women to go to the well. Uh, usually, women went to the well in the morning or in the evening. That's, and it kind of makes sense. The cool of the day, plus they needed the water for the day. So they would go in the morning to get their supply for the day, and then they'd replenish it at night. And it kind of like had the effect of, I don't know if you've ever had to do your laundry in a laundromat, but you go to a laundromat long enough, you kind of get relationships with people. You start to talk to people, you're there on a daily schedule, and all of a sudden you have a little group of people that meet at the laundromat. Well, it's kind of the same thing that happened back then at the well. These women would go, and they kind of had conversations amongst themselves. So this tells us a lot about this woman who didn't come when the other women went. She didn't go at the normal time. Uh, Plus, it was odd for her to go alone. This was just uncalled for. Now, the Bible says she came from a tiny village near there called Sychar. And we know 
basically where Sychar was. It was in Samaritan territory. It's nestled between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Sychar was built at the, the intersection of two trade routes. So it was very strategically located. One came up from Jerusalem on its way to Capernaum, and the other one went west from Jericho toward the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a kind of a great intersection for a city to be located at, this village, very strategic and central Israel there. Well, the well was about half a mile outside of the village, near the point where these two routes came together. It was called Jacob's Well. It's named after the patriarch who probably dug it some 2,000 years before this time. Um, And they would travel throughout Israel, and everybody knew where this well was because it was a place to get a drink out in the middle of the desert. You probably need a drink now and then when you're walking along. And this well, uh, the archaeologists say, they probably tapped into a spring some 150 feet down. So it was a pretty significant well. And as the woman here, she looks at Jesus, and he looks at her, and there's four invisible walls that just immediately are there. There's, first of all, the religious wall. (laughs) There's the gender wall. There's the racial wall. And there's also a moral wall. And I would say that we run into these walls every day amongst people that we maybe try to witness to, try to befriend. And yet our Lord found a most profound way to break through all those walls and go directly to her heart. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. So follow along as I read verses 1 through 8 for us. And we'll look at the first point here, the point of contact. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria named Sychar, near the, village, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, midday. A woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, geography is very important when we look at this story and we understand it. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked up on top of one another, you might say. There was Galilee, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. So you picture Israel, you have Galilee up north, Samaria in the middle, Samaria in the middle, and then Judea, Judah in the south. And the quickest way to get to Galilee from Judea was to go due north right through Samaria. That was the shortest route. Verse 3 says that Jesus, what's to say there, had to go through Samaria. Now, why did he have to go through Samaria? What's the question? How, why did he have to go through Samaria? That's, the answer is he didn't. He didn't. He's God. He could just close his eyes and he'd be there, right? But he didn't do that. There was another route he could have taken. And some pious Jews would take that route all the time. They would go east, they would cross the Jordan River, enter a region entitled Perea, then go north, recross the Jordan River, and then they would be in Galilee. And you say, well, that's a lot of work. Yeah, but they didn't want to be infected from this pagan land of Samaria. They didn't want to go through that territory. They didn't respect those people. They, uh, they would be, you know... Uh, affected by going through that in their religion. They thought, well, that would make them unholy. They weren't holy in the first place, but they didn't think that. And so a little history helps us out as well. The Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. They hated each other. 
It all went back to 722 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered Israel and they took the northern ten tribes into captivity. Then they brought in Gentiles from the other areas to settle in the same area. Now, eventually, those Gentiles, with all their pagan ways and their pagan religions, intermarried with the Jews. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, that's a (laughs) no-no. You know, they're God's holy people. They're to be called out and be separate. Well, these Jews had left behind there. They began to intermarry with these Gentiles. And over the generations, those people who intermarried were called Samaritans. And they developed their own religion. Uh, it was partly based on pagan ideas, their, ba- their past, and it was partly based on uh, Judaism. Eventually, they built their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim. And then they developed their own language and their own version of the Old Testament. <laughs> it only comprised the first five books. Now, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans for a variety of reasons, but they looked at them basically as religious and racial half-breeds. They had no respect for these people at all. Uh, In modern-day vernacular, if you think of the Middle East and you think of the rift between the Palestinians and the Israelis, that's kind of what it was like. They had no respect for each other. So this brings us back here to verse 3. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria when the Jews either didn't go there at all or they passed through there as quickly as possible? The answer is is very simple. It's very profound, actually. Jesus went there because he intended to meet this woman. (laughs) That's the whole point. He knew she would be coming. Why? Because he's God. He knows everything. She'd be coming to the well at precisely the moment he was sitting there weary from his journey. It was a setup. It was all set up. See, nothing happens by chance in this story. You read it on the surface and you think, oh, wow, that was a coincidence. No. God is working. And just like in our lives, nothing happens by chance. God is working. Every detail is part of the outworking of God's will, God's purpose. And that's a a big point when you start talking about evangelism, right? Because you start to go out there in the world and you start thinking it's all about you and your plan and your spiel and your, your speech or whatever you're going to give to these people, you're sorely mistaken. You have to stop and ask God, what is your plan when it comes to sharing my faith? This woman wasn't looking for Jesus. She wasn't looking for All she wants is some water. <laughs> She's just doing her house, you know, duties and getting the water for household. All she wants is water. But you know what? Jesus was looking for her. So you, you have to go to Samaria if you want to reach Samaritans. You just have to. That's where they dwell. He doesn't avoid Samaria, and he doesn't say, okay, disciples, let's hurry up and let's just, we don't want to rest here because this is Samaria. We don't want to stay in this pagan land. We're just hurry up through there. No, I'm going to take some time. Though she does not know it, this woman, who is unnamed, is having a divine appointment with the very Son of God. She has no clue. And we can take a very important principle here for evangelism. You can just write this down. Reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable and may at times be difficult. Reaching people for Christ is not always comfortable and may at times be difficult, but you have to go to where the people are if you want to reach them at all. I mean, we can pray all day long, God, please send people to our church. But until we go out and we invite our friends, our relatives, our neighbors to hear the gospel, to share the gospel with them personally, you know, that's the misnomer of the modern-day church, right? The modern-day church thinks that somehow the sole purpose of the church on a Sunday morning is to win the lost. That's not the purpose here this morning. 
Now that may happen because we're sharing God's truth. If you're not a believer here, you may be, your heart may be pierced with God's truth and God may unveil your sin to you and your need of a Savior and you may come to Christ. That's great. But that's just a, a side thing. The reason we meet on Sundays is so that we can be edified, so that we can be built up as Christians. That's why we sing Christian hymns and Christian songs and songs that focus on who we are in Christ. We're not interested in entertaining people. We're not interested in just getting a big crowd so we're going to have fancy music and, and worldly things so we can get everybody here so we can share the gospel with them. That's the church growth movement mindset, and it's, it's sorely mistaken. You don't see it in Scripture anywhere. So you have to go where the people are if you want to reach them. Comfort is not the issue. Comfort is not the issue. Is it uncomfortable to share your faith with unbelievers? Sure. It just is. Even people who are very, very good at it say, yeah, there's a little bit of discomfort there. It's just kind of awkward sometimes. But it's kind of like, think of it this way, the firefighter who runs into a burning house to rescue those inside. That's really what we're called to do. You wouldn't be a firefighter very long if you just stood outside. Hello? <laughs> Excuse me? Hate to bother you. Uh, your, your house is on fire. Do you think maybe by chance you could come out here and join me in the street? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really on fire big time. You know, I, I really hate to wake you, you know, and, and I don't want to bother. No. A fireman would never do that. They risk life and limb and they barge in there and they scoop up the people that need to be saved. And they're not thinking about themselves. See, Jesus intended to save this woman, so he went where she was. She went, he went where she was. She came along to the well at noontime. Now, this was potentially dangerous and somewhat unusual because, as I said, women usually go in the morning and the evening. It's kind of a social event for them. Uh, the fact that this woman comes al- alone may very well indicate that she was well known to all the women in the village and they didn't want to have anything to do with her. You're not welcome here in the morning. You're not welcome here in the evening. You're not part of our group. Maybe she was ostracized from the, the other woman, women there in Sychar. But the conversation they had here is a simple question from Jesus. Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? You know, I've reached out to more people by simply expressing a need to somebody. You know, I mean, there's been times uh, when we lived, uh, when we lived over in, in Fremont and even down the desert, we'd have neighbors we're trying to reach. And I'd be out there doing something on the car in the driveway or in the backyard or something. And I'd notice maybe my neighbor was out in his yard. And I thought, hey, well, this is a good opportunity. Hey, do you think you can give me a hand? I didn't need his hand. I didn't need his help. But I could use it. So I just requested it. Oh, sure, what do you need? And what's that do? That, that brings two people together that otherwise would never have come together. So sometimes to express a need is a good thing. And Jesus simply does that. He says, hey, will you give me a drink? He's tired. He's thirsty. She has the water, access to the water that he needs. But listen, he has the water she needs, and she doesn't even know it. See, he was thirsty, and he knew it. She was thirsty, and she didn't know it. She had no idea. The woman here didn't come to the well-seeking Christ. But he came to the well seeking her. Credible. In this approach, we see the great heart of our Lord, who is really without prejudice. It matters not to him that others would not go to Samaria. He didn't care what they were going to say about him. Or that others would speak to this woman. That was just a no-no in that culture. He, he welcomes all and he shuns none. That's the Lord that we serve. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it tells us why Jesus came. Jesus came that he would what? He would seek and save who? The lost. The lost. That's what his focus was. 
The story tells us what that means. John 4 is all about God's sovereign saving grace. God's sovereign saving grace. He found her. She didn't find him. And the same is true for all of us. You will never come to Christ until Christ comes first to you. That's what the Bible teaches. And you hear people say, oh, I found Christ. No, you didn't. I always say, well, I didn't know he was lost. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, what happens in this chapter looks like a chance encounter, but it's nothing like that. The time, the place, all the circumstances, they've been prearranged by God before the world even began. Well, look at the challenge here. Move from the contact to the challenge. In verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? It's like, wow, this is blowing my mind. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. I mean, she's kind of missing the point a little bit, you know. But he's going to make it very clear to her, as we're going to find out. There's, there's kind of a, a, a triple surprise here in these verses. First, that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan. That just blew her mind. It's like, well, this has never happened before. Secondly, that a man would speak to a woman. Even if they're both Jews, they wouldn't do this, in public at least. And then third, that a Jew would drink from a Samaritan's cup. That's what she had. She had some kind of a thing that she could put water, uh, put the basket down, get water, and and she must have some kind of storage device, a cup or something. And so when the woman saw Jesus, she knew that he was a Jew by his dress and probably also his accent when he talked. She knew that he was a stranger because she'd never seen him there before. Uh, It was almost unheard of for a man to speak to a woman in public under those circumstances. And yet Jesus didn't care what the public thought. And to ask for a drink of water was even more unusual. Because the rabbis, the religious Jews, the rabbis taught that it was a sin. It was an unholy thing to touch a utensil that a Samaritan had touched. Whether it was a woman or not. They had all these weird beliefs. And they thought, wow, if you're a Samaritan, you touch that fork. If I touch that fork, man, I'm in trouble. I've just, you know, made myself unpure. Um, So when Jesus offers her living water, he's being deliberately, I think, kind of questionable in his, there's some ambiguity there in the phrase. Because the phrase could also mean running water. He was trying to raise her curiosity. And that's always a good thing to do when you are able to uh, share Christ with someone. Raise their curiosity. You know, so he asked her, you know, you, you came here for water. I've got water you've never dreamed of before. He's leading her step by step. To saving faith. He's offering her, he's offering not to quench her thirst, but to banish it once and for all. Now, if somebody's trekking, you know, gallons of water back and forth every day at noontime, that's a good message for them to hear. 
This was what we call a teachable moment. (laughs) We have to be aware of those. And Jesus returns again and again to the, the central issue. Do you know who I am? If you knew my true identity, he says, you could ask and I would give you the water that leads to eternal life. And not just a drink of water, but a gushing spring. Then he says, that will well up within your heart. He's saying, you'll be (laughs) self-sufficient. You don't have to come here anymore. In verse 10, Jesus says, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. You know, when you stop and think about salvation, you know, we make it so much more complicated, I think, than what it has to be. That's, That's what salvation is. Salvation is simply asking God to save you and receiving the salvation that he offers through Christ. That's all salvation is. Heaven itself is yours for the asking. Just ask for it. That's all. Admit your need. Anyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again. But if you continue to drink of the water of the world, then you will thirst again. You know, the body can live for weeks without food, but only a couple days, maybe, without water. Water is very critical to sustain our health, to sustain our being. And so this was a very pointed uh, matter that Jesus was addressing with her. And boy, if, if you never had to come to this well again, wouldn't that be a good thing? Her curiosity is peaked. We sing a song once in a while, Fill My Cup, Lord. We're going to sing it this morning, but I forgot about it. So. But so I'll read it to you instead. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from the well that shall never run dry. And the chorus, you know, the chorus, fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup, fill it up, and make me whole. See, that's the gospel message. And so in verse 15, the woman responds. She says, give me this water. She didn't understand what it meant, but she wanted it. See, that's when you know God is working. You know, it's the individual you run into. Well, you know, I, I, I want to talk about uh, creation, or I want to talk about uh, evolution, or I want to talk about uh, um, other big theological things. Well, you don't need to know all that stuff. All you need to know is that you're a sinner, and God's a Savior through Christ. So we see the contact here. We see the challenge. Look at the confrontation in verses 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. What's he do? He confronts her. See, Jesus wasn't somebody who, you know, played footsie with people. He cut right to the chase. He was willing to be rejected. He was willing, for the sake of the truth, to reach people, maybe in an uncomfortable way at times. So he just blurts out, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, well, I don't have a husband. Notice she's not offering the other information, right? That's why I said she's kind of shamed in her society. She's feeling shame herself. There's a lot of people, beloved, in our lives that walk around daily with, riddled with shame and guilt. They will never tell you that, but that's what's in their hearts. And we have to know that Christ is the answer. He says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you know what? You're right in saying, I, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. He just calls her out on it. And by the way, the one that you have now, the one you're shocking up with now, is not your husband. But what you said is true. You don't have a husband. So what does he do here? I mean, it almost appears like he's insensitive, right? It appears like, man, he's just being downright rude. You can't treat people that way. Well, that's a lie. That's what society wants you to. You know, we live in this politically correct society today. Well, you can't, you can't say this. You can't say that. I don't think Jesus would be politically correct today. I think he'd be more concerned with people's souls. 
Why bring up anything about her past? Why would she do? Why would he do this? They're having a nice little conversation. I mean, is he trying to embarrass her? Is that what his motive is? Well, the answer is clearly no. But I'll tell you what, his instruction to call her husband made her very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to go into the details because she simply says, I don't have a husband. She answers his question honestly. That was true, but it wasn't the whole story. And you'll find when you talk to people more and more about Christ, they're not going to just give you the whole story. They're going to give you little bits and pieces. It's up to you to piece them together. She knew that she was hiding the truth. But what she didn't know was that Jesus knows the truth. So he proceeds to reveal the rest of the story to her, kind of like a Paul Harvey moment. Let me tell you the rest of the story, lady. Yeah, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. I mean, it was kind of the the ultimate reality check for this poor woman out there in the, the noonday sun. I mean, even today, that would be kind of weird, unusual, if you met somebody who's had five husbands. Now, there's people that do, and, you know, they pass on or whatever, but that's, that's a high number. I mean, you wonder, did they all die? That's unlikely. Maybe she'd been divorced five times, probably. Was there promiscuity involved? Who knows? It doesn't tell us all these deal t- details that we want to know. Certainly, she is currently living in a sinful relationship. That's clear. With a man outside of marriage, that's always the wrong thing to do. I talk to young people now and then, and, you know, so are you married? Oh, no, you know, we're living together. It's like, I always tell them this. Don't get married. What? What did you say? I said, I wouldn't get married if I were you. Why? Why do you say that? Because statistics of people that live together before they get married have a very, 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 very high rate of divorce. (laughs) See, you think you're doing the right thing and testing this stuff out. (laughs) You're doing the opposite of what God tells you to do. So you're you're thinking logically that this is right. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you, you go to the store and you try something out. And if you don't like it, you take it back. It doesn't work that way. That's not God's plan. So, I mean, if you're going to be committed to each other, then be committed to each other. Put a ring on the finger. Do it the right way. Don't just live together in sin. And it is sin. So, these words that Jesus said were really a verbal slap in her face. And yet, honestly, it was the most loving thing that he could have done to her and done for her. And see, there's an important spiritual principle here at work. Without conviction of sin, there can be no conversion. Without conviction of sin, there can be no conversion. See, God sees behind the mask. Everybody's wearing a mask today. He sees behind the mask. He sees to the reality within the human heart. And until we come to grips with the sickness of sin and our own willful disobedience to a holy God... We cannot be saved. Bottom line. Is Jesus being cruel here? Well, no more than a a doctor who had prescribed surgery to save your life. I mean, you know, can you imagine if you had a a doctor you went and and they they realized you had a cancerous tumor somewhere and they could take it out in time. But, well, you know, we don't want to hurt their feelings. And, you know, they'll get really upset if we tell them they have to go to surgery. So we're just not going to tell. That wouldn't be a good doctor. Even though it's painful to go through that process, the cruelest thing the doctor could do is hide the information from you. Because unless he removes the tumor, you're certainly going to die. But we weigh the the prospect of maybe the, the pain of the surgery and the recovery Weigh that against dying. Yeah, you might say, yeah, I'm willing to risk the pain and, and uh, the recovery. In another place, Jesus described his mission this way. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. Remember that? 
but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And you say, well, I thought we were all sinners, right? We all are. The unfortunate thing is some people don't realize they are sinners. (laughs) They actually think they're righteous. Just like some people walking around think they're healthy when they're really not. (laughs) Just as a doctor must sometimes give bad information, hurtful information even to someone in order to heal them, the great physician of the soul must wound us with the truth and about ourselves in order to heal us spiritually, heal us from the sickness of our sin. By asking about her husband, he really exposes this woman's lifelong pursuit of happiness. I mean, I think that's what was going on here. I mean, we don't know, but just conjecture. Obviously, she entered into one failed relationship after another. I don't think she did it with the intent of ending each relationship. I think she was searching for something. I I think every time she got married, maybe, oh, this is the man. This is the one. And she was sorely disappointed every time. Now she's not even willing to risk marriage. She's been so tainted by the process. She's like, I'm just going to live with somebody. I'm not going to go down that road again. And so what Jesus' words reveal here is a deep-seated loneliness in this woman's heart. There's something missing there. Far from being irrelevant, the words of Jesus go to the core of her problem. And really, each one of our own problems. Because we've been raised to believe that if you only find the, the right man or the right woman, oh, you'll be happy forever. And some people, unfortunately, don't end up in a happy marriage. So what do they do? They end it and jump into another marriage and jump into another marriage. That's no way to live. Because no human relationship, listen, can ever satisfy your needs. Sometimes in counseling, you'll hear the the wife usually, well, he's not meeting my needs. Yeah, he can't. Just like you can't meet his needs. It's impossible. That's why you look to Christ to meet your needs. You don't look to another individual to meet your needs. You're going to be disappointed sorely every time. Because no human relationship can satisfy our deep-seated needs. We're, we're spiritual beings and we're made to have a relationship with God. The God who created us. And until we do, we're going to be needy. Now that doesn't mean men as women that we're not to strive. We're not to try to meet our spouse's needs emotionally, physically, whatever way. We're called to do that as believers. But I'm just here to tell you, don't think that that's going to be an end all. Until God meets their need, you're not going to have a chance. We were made to know know God. And until we know him through Christ, we are doomed to restlessness and despair. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus loves this woman? I think he does, sure. He knows the truth, and he still offers her eternal life. See, that's the wonderfulness of God's grace. Only someone who can love you and looking, while looking into your past without even blinking, you know they really love you. Real love means knowing the truth about someone and reaching out to them anyway. You hear it all the time. People are dating and, and you hear them calling these shows on the radio. And, well, you know, I, I've kind of had a sordid past and I'm, I'm wondering when I should tell. Should I wait till after the wedding to tell them? It's like, what are you thinking? I mean, they're just going to drop you like a hot rock? I mean, because if they are, you might want to tell them now. It doesn't make any sense to wait. I mean, be honest and open. He's not ashamed of her past. But he can't help her with it until she gets beyond the shame and admits the truth. And see, this is what happens sometimes with sin in our lives. We're so shamed 
Even in believers' lives, when sin takes a grip in a believer's life, what happens? They feel shame. So what happens? They stop attending church. Why? Because they don't feel worthy to be there. They feel maybe somebody might ask them a question or whatever, unveil something. If you're, if you're walking into the path of sin, the place you need to be is around the saints. You need to be in church. You need to be held accountable. You need to be willing to come and admit. Say, man, I'm struggling in this area. Can somebody help me out? Don't think you're hiding it. You may be hiding it from other human beings, but you're not hiding it from God. It needs to be confronted. And this is what Jesus does. He helps her admit the truth. And at this point, she's almost, but not, not quite saved yet. She's near the kingdom, but she, she hasn't entered the door yet. Jesus laid bare what she thought she could keep hidden. She told him. And when you do that, what happens? That makes sinners very uncomfortable. When you call sin, sin, that makes people who are outside of Christ very uncomfortable. I don't think you should say that. What she, she does, she, she wants to change the subject. And that's what she does. Look in verse 19. Move on to the conversion. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> let's, let's, let's not talk about my husbands anymore. This is getting a little too hot. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, verse 24. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. <laughs> She's clueless, right? She's talking to him. She has no idea. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. <laughs> Jesus kind of drops the mic. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> wow. See, it's now clear to this woman that she has met a very, very, very unusual man. First of all, because he knows her past. So she thinks that he must be some kind of prophet. Something about this guy, you know, how could he know this? And since he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan, she says, hey, let's talk about theology. And in that day, the, the Jews did worship in Jerusalem and the Samaritans worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And so she wants to know which mountain is the right one to worship. She just doesn't want to talk about her husbands anymore, frankly. She just wants to talk about something else. Jesus doesn't bother debating her. You notice his, his technique here? What does he do? He simply tells her that a time is coming when geography is not going to matter. In other words, you're focusing on the wrong things, lady. You got, you got your, your, your focus on the wrong stuff. What God wants are people who worship him in spirit and truth. That's what he conveys to her. Now, notice he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, you stupid lady, what are you, what are you, what are you worshiping in Mount Gerizim for? That's not the place, you know, what a moron you are. He doesn't say that. Sometimes, you know, we, we want to get people in a gotcha thing. It's kind of like this big debate when we're sharing our faith. and We just want to pin them to the wall with all our, our apologetical knowledge. That's not the right way to go. That wouldn't do any good. It would probably make them angry. And what do they do? They stomp off. I mean, she probably would have walked away from Jesus if, she would, if he would have done that. I mean, one of the great truths to come out of the story is that God is greater than geography. God is greater than race. God is greater than class or sex, sexual background, or even religious tradition. God is greater than all that. All we have to do is look around the room and look at the people who were saved and what our backgrounds were. We all come from a sordid background. True worship is not about where or how or even when. That's not what true worship is about. It's all about 
who you are and who God is. When you understand those two things, then you can worship God properly. Because God wants worship that is based on truth. He wants worship that is based on a wholehearted personal commitment to him. I mean, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is is that religious activity doesn't really count. (laughs) Going to church, being baptized, giving money, praying six times a day, following the Ten Commandments, having your quiet time devotions every day, all those things are as, 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 as good as, as nothing. They don't count with God when it comes to salvation. That is not going to save you. And they are good things. Those are good disciplines that should be part of our life as Christians. The reason they don't count is because anyone can go through the motions. And we've seen this time and time again. And still have a heart that's filled with anger, with bitterness, with profanity. With hatred, lust, greed, envy, pride. The worship God accepts must be based on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And offered to him from a humble heart of faith. But there's good news here too because if what God wants is spirit and truth, guess what? You can't give it to him. (laughs) You don't qualify. Salvation is not limited to the Jews. This is what Jesus is really explaining to her. The good news is meant for everyone. God is an equal access provider when it comes to salvation. Salvation is not about which mountain do you go to. It's about going to Jesus for salvation. And anyone can do that at any time in anywhere. And so, slowly, this woman's beginning to get it. You can see her wheels beginning to crank. She's heard that the Messiah will come one day to earth. And imagine what her surprise when was when, she, in verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. I mean, this is an amazing statement that Christ is making here. Amazing. He's plainly claim, claiming to be the Messiah. And he does it in a very unique way. In the Greek, it reads something like this. This one who speaks to you, I am. That's in Exodus 3.15. When God revealed himself to Moses, I am. See, Jesus is claiming identity with God. And this woman was probably just blown away. Here she is. She came on a hot day in the middle of the day just for some water. And she ends up facing the water of life himself face to face. And then you see in verse 27 her changed life. It says, just then his disciples came back. They missed the whole thing. I mean, you know, they probably would have protested. We can't talk to her. She's a Samaritan, you know. So God even arranged them to be gone. They marveled, look at this, that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? And why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, look at verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now the woman somehow is converted here between verses 26 and 27. How do we know? Because she leaves her water pot. That's a very crucial thing. I mean, if she left the pot, she'd be in the same spot Jesus was. He had nothing to draw with either. So it was a very precious commodity that you just wouldn't leave behind. But she does, and she goes, and she tells others in the town. And it's amazing. This lady doesn't really understand a lot. It's very basic, her faith. All she says is, he knows me. He knows me, and I think he's the Messiah. You know, that's not like this four spiritual laws. You know, that's a very basic entry point for salvation. She's not a very likely witness at all. 
most of us would want our new converts a little bit better trained than that. But God uses those who are willing to be used, beloved. Notice her invitation to the people of Sychar. She doesn't say, you must be born again. But a must, much gentler, come and see. Come and see. If you ever get a chance, listen to a song by uh, Bob Bennett called Come and See. Uh, wonderful song. That's what Philip said to Nathaniel in John 1. 46. No threats, no promises. Just, you know what, just come and see it for yourself. Her invitation clearly is sincere because they responded. It's non-threatening. It's open to everyone. See, the key here to see is that when, when Jesus gives you living water, when he transforms your soul, your heart, you want to share it with someone else. You can't just keep it to yourself. It's impossible. And you come to the end of the story here in verse 39, 42. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. <laughs> he told me all that I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. I mean, this was unheard of. I mean, he could have very easily been within his rights to say, well, I'd love to, but, you know, other people are going to think, well, I've just been here, you know, just being here is not a good thing for my ministry. People are going to look down on it. So, you know, I think we better just move along. But he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. His word. Not even her word. It was her testimony, but her testimony was his word. If you're going to share anything with anybody, share his word. That's what has the power to convict, to transform human hearts. You know, and you don't have to know the address. You don't have to be able to quote it perfectly. I mean, it's great if you can do that, but if not, you know, say, you know, the Bible says we've all sinned. Everybody's a sinner. I mean, you, you can share the word of God in ways that is very uh, comfortable with people. It's non-threatening. And it's a wonderful lesson of the power of the gospel. That's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Because of the power of God unto salvation. So here's this one w- woman with inadequate knowledge and just a mustard seed of faith, you might say. And he br- she brings her whole town to Christ. And you're going to tell me, how long have you been a Christian and you've been in church week after week after week under the teaching of the word of God? And you're going to bring up an excuse and say, well, I'm not good at evangelism. Come on. She didn't know anything. She simply shared her testimony. That's all it is. I mean, talk about evangelism explosion, man. You saw it. This one lady, then the whole village comes to Christ. She never attended any classes. She never read any books. But what happened? She met Jesus. She met Christ. He transformed her life. And she couldn't stop talking about it. Sometimes we wonder how little a person can believe and still be saved. Do you ever think about that? What do they have to understand? They have to understand about election and about creation? No. How much do you have to understand in order to get to heaven? Or how much can a person get wrong, you might say, and still be saved? <laughs> what are, the, what are the, the bottom line here? Well, you know what? I think there's two things. Two things that you have to be solid on. First of all, you have to understand that you're a sinner. You have to understand that you're not righteous. You have to understand that you're inadequate, that you're a sinner. And secondly, you have to understand that Jesus is the Savior that you need. Those two things qualify you for salvation. If you know you're a sinner and you're willing to trust Christ as your Savior, you can be saved. I mean, there's plenty of time to fill in all the details later, trust me, because eternity lies in the balance. I often think if I'm on a plane and it's going down, what am I going to share with people? Am I going to start talking about election or talking about creation. No, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to talk about the idea that you're you're all sinners and you need to be saved and Christ is the Savior. Put your faith in Christ. 
That little phrase at the end of verse 42 tells us that the hated Samaritans figured out something the Jews never quite got right. They understood that Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. These half-breeds that were looked down upon, they heard the woman's testimony, and they heard Jesus, and they believed in him. You can't be saved on a second-hand faith. You aren't going to heaven because your mother went to heaven, or your grandmother went to heaven, or your father was a missionary, or your dad was a pastor. You've got to make that decision on your own. You can't live off your parents' faith. Sooner or later, you've got to step forward. You've got to step up to the plate, and you've got to say, yeah, you know what? Sign me up. I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I want to turn from my sin to him for, for forgiveness. We'll conclude with, in verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Look at those three little words, if you knew. If you knew who I was. Do you know who he is? If so, will you ask him for that living water? If you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is ask. That's how simple our message is. It's like asking for a drink of water. There was one guy, Bill Fay, he used to own a brothel in New Orleans. He came to Christ. Kind of a crazy background. And he boiled down, when you're sharing your faith, you can ask people these questions. If you memorize these questions, it opens up the conversation. You can use them to kind of cultivate an interest in the gospel of Christ. First of all, the first question is, do you have any kind of spiritual belief? <laughs> if you're talking to somebody, do you have any kind of spiritual belief? That's a, kind of a, not an invasive question. Secondly, do you know who Jesus is? Or to you, who is Jesus? Probably a better way to ask it. To you, who is Jesus? Another question is, do you think there's a heaven or hell? Another question, if you died, where are you going? <laughs> Why would God let you into heaven? And when you're asking these questions, you don't argue with the responses. He's found, you know what? If they say, ah, I have no spiritual belief at all, okay. Just move on to the next question. Well, to you, who is Jesus? Because he was a historical figure, right? So they could give their answer. You don't have to debate them. You don't have to say, then just go right down the line. Well, do you think there's a heaven or hell? If you died, where would you be going? Why would God let you into heaven? But then the final question is this, to arouse their interest. And this, it works. If what you believe is not true, you just told me what you believe in a nutshell. If what you believe is not true, would you want me to tell you? And people usually respond in the affirmative. Well, uh, well, sure. I mean, most people rarely will say no. You'll get some. But most people will respond, well, sure. And it opens up the door. The application I'll leave you with is no one is too sinful to be saved, first of all. Secondly, no one is so lost that the Lord cannot find him. Thirdly, no one can be saved without facing his sinful past. Fourthly, no one who faces his sinful past will be turned away by Jesus, if you face it honestly. And then fifthly, no one who meets Jesus will ever be the same again. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the, the practical application of this story. As Jesus spoke with this woman at length at this well in the middle of the day, and we saw her life transformed. We know, Lord, that you're ready, Jesus. You're ready to give us this living water. 
It's free for the asking. The question is, are we ready? Are we willing to receive it? I pray for each heart here today that you would work, that you would draw people to yourself. And Father, for those who desire Christ, I just pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember, there's two things. You admit your sin and admit your need of a Savior, that Savior being Jesus Christ. If you understand those two things, you can be saved. And for us believers, I pray that we wouldn't make our evangelism efforts more difficult than what they need to be. Lord, that you would give us the boldness we need through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that we wouldn't make it difficult, that we wouldn't make it some theological treatise when we're speaking with someone about Christ, but we would boil it down to the basics and then sit back and watch you work. Help us not to think that we're the the salesman that has to close the deal. Clearly, you're in charge, just like you were in charge of your meeting with this woman in this remote place at this well in the middle of the day. And Father, we just pray for wisdom as we encounter people every day who are lost without Christ, whether it's in our family, whether it's our spouses, our loved ones, our children even, our neighbors, our friends at work, whoever it may be, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we desire and we understand that your purpose was to seek and to save the lost. And as believers, I just ask, are we seeking the lost today? I pray you bless our fellowship time across the way as well. Give us a a wonderful week. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with one song.